The following sermon was preached at Redeemer Church in Tumball, Texas. For more information, go to makingmuchofjesus.org. It's always an honor to be here, and so I'm great, grateful for the opportunity. And um, I have the opportunity now, working as the director of church engagement with Arrow, to be all over the country. Uh, all the time and be in very different churches, a variety of different churches and a variety of different stages. And um, it's just a blessing and an honor and a privilege to be able to stand week in and week out where I know um, uh, someone, your leaders here are standing week in and week out, faithfully proclaiming the word of God to you. And so it's an honor to be here. Uh, grateful to still be connected with Redeemer and the work that you guys are doing here was getting a download from Jeff between services, just about how gracious God has been to your church. And I was flipping through the bulletin this morning. Is it a bulletin? You call it a bulletin? So old school like that, bulletin. Uh, And uh, you can just read through there and you can even quite honestly see numbers in there and it just screams the grace of God. And so it's an honor to be here with you this morning. Before we continue, I want to show you my world so you can throw that picture up now. I forgot to do this first service. So that's the world I come from. Uh, it's an estrogen-filled, all pink, all drama, all the end of the world, all the time. Everything is the end of the world. So this is, uh, my life is, my life is pure chaos and drama punctuated by moments of serenity, which we've captured in this photo. And these are the ones that you post online to make everyone think that this is actually what life is like. But this is my beautiful wife, Emily. We met on the campus of A&M and we're married... That's right. Get it out of your system. We actually live in College Station. Now we own a piece of Aggieland. Nothing greater in all the world. Even though we just sang about Jesus being greater. But the shortest there is Darby. And then the step up is Presley. A step up is Macy. And then I'm holding Marley. And Marley is in large part why I'm here with you this morning. And you'll hear a little bit more of her story as we, get, as we get into it. If you wouldn't mind turning with me to Galatians chapter 4, that's where we're going to start out our time, and then we're going to jump all over and fly all over the place. I want to be very clear with you this morning about my objectives with you and my agenda with you, uh, so that that can act as a framework for where we're going to head and some of the things that we're going to discuss. And I want us to begin with this idea. I want us to begin with the idea that adoption is this imagery that is used all throughout scripture to paint this very vivid, beautiful image of God's rescuing and redeeming love of us. That over and over and over again, you're going to see this idea in scripture that we've been adopted into the family of God, that we've been grafted into the family of God, that we were once outside, but now because of Jesus, we are inside. We now are called sons and daughters of God. We experience the rights and privileges of being known and loved as the sons and daughters, the children of God. And this, this whole imagery, this picture paints this, this vivid depiction of God's rescuing and redeeming love of us. And so in light of that, as we look at that in scripture this morning, I want us to focus on three things. I want to I set the agenda before you. Uh, if there were an outline, here would be kind of your three main ideas. Number one is this, that we are called to deeply celebrate that truth. That the gospel in us is paramount for the gospel to be demonstrated through us. That, that we want to be a people who deeply and richly and profoundly celebrate the gospel. And what I want you to do this morning, if nothing else, I want you to walk out of this place, maybe in the back of your mind saying, I've never really heard the gospel that way. It's, 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 a, it's, 
It's a new way for me to celebrate it. It's a new way for me to understand it. It's a new way for me to really internalize it for me, that this is the power of the work of Jesus for me, that I now, as Kevin said, just to consider this idea that we are now children of God, that we can't even say that with our tongues uh, lightly because it's such a heavy, heavy statement. That, that what it cost Jesus in order for us to be able to even make that claim was heavy and hard, but necessary. And we want the gospel to be so deeply embedded within you that it can't help flow from you. That we are not just a people who celebrate the gospel, but we are a people who are called to then demonstrate that gospel in the world around us. That's not a new idea. I listen to the podcast all the time. I freaked Jeff out earlier and said, I listen to your podcast. Whoa, that's weird, right? Uh, And some of you do too. It's a consistent message from here that we celebrate and we demonstrate. We live it out. These ideas are not mutually exclusive in Scripture. As a matter of fact, you could probably make the argument that Scripture suggests uh, you want to know what someone celebrates? Look at what they demonstrate. You want to know what they demonstrate? Look at what they celebrate, and it's going to inevitably flow out of their life. And here's the idea, that what we deeply celebrate in Jesus, we are therefore called to widely demonstrate. But here's another idea that flows from that. Not all of us are called to demonstrate the gospel in the same way. That we don't live, we don't, we don't live in this monochromatic faith. We don't live in this siphoned kind of robotic system of religion where it says you were once floating around out here, but then Jesus brought you in and narrow. No, it's, it's you were once confined and inhibited, but Jesus has expanded your life and given you the freedom and the creativity and the capacity and the grace to explore the uniqueness and the diversity of who you are in the body of Christ. That we all operate within the same body for the same purpose, but we all have unique functions. We'll see in a moment that scripture says some are ears, some are eyes, some are hands, some are feet, that all of these unique components come together to form one body, but they're all equally important. And so I, what I want to do is debunk right, off the out, right on the outset this morning, I want to debunk this idea that orphan care equals adoption. Because the reality is that not everyone in this room is called to adopt. But the reality also remains true that everyone in this room has some role to play. And what we want to do is create space for that and create a diversity of thought and thinking and creativity for that. Because what is true is that God is calling some of you to adopt and God already has and some of you already have. And then what's also equally true is that across the room is a guy that God is never going to call to adopt, but he is going to say, hey, I want you to help I want you to help those people pay for their adoptions. And now that guy with all the money, but no space for another child in their home, or no, no calling from God to bring another child in their home, who felt at one point like, I really don't have a space in this. I don't really have a ministry in orphan care. Oh, yes, you do, right? Yes, you do. Or the empty nesters who say, we've been there, done that, raised our kids. Well, my question to you is, why can't you still be there and do that? But if we're not there yet, then let's say, how can I still play a part? I've been there and done that, raised my kids, I'm done with kids, but because you've been there and done that, we need you to come alongside the young families who are there doing it and mentor them, serve them, counsel them in their marriage, help them because you've been there, done that. There's space for you in this. The college kid, the high school kid, whatever you are, who says, I can't bring a child into my home. No, but you can become a licensed certified babysitter. 
in order to babysit foster kids according to state regulations, and you can serve and support families in your church that are bringing these children into your home. Here's the point, is that as a people who deeply celebrate the gospel, we are therefore compelled to widely demonstrate the gospel, but not all in the same way. There is a, there's endless uh, amounts of opportunity in this space for you to find how God is uniquely wiring you. And then third, then we'll get into the text. What I want us to do this morning in light of the gospel is to begin to shift our thinking a little bit. Because what inevitably happens as we, as we speak to groups and as we engage with churches and communities and, and individuals is a skepticism rises up. What's this guy's agenda? He's going to try to get me to adopt every orphan in the world, right? No, right? No. We're going to try to get you to celebrate the gospel more deeply, to begin to think more widely about how God is uniquely calling you to demonstrate that, but then also to begin to shift our thinking away from what's in it for me, what's in it for my family. I don't know if I want another kid for my family. Well, let me say this from the outset, and then I'm going to attempt to prove it to you by the end. I'm not sure that God is as, is as concerned about whether or not you want another kid for your family as he is about whether or not he wants your family for another kid. That we begin to shift our thinking away from a family-centric thinking to a gospel-centric thinking. This gospel idea of, of, of the great exchange of, of it's better to give than to receive. That this is not about getting a child for my family. It is about giving my family for a child, and that is a fundamentally different posture that we'll see here this morning. So let's get into it. The gospel is consistently communicated throughout scripture in these terms, this multi-generational terms, that it's ultimately this multi-generational story of redemption. Here's what I mean by that, and then we'll see. That there is no part of who we are, our past, present, and future, that goes untouched by the work of Jesus. This multi-generational story unfolding in our lives. That our past has been touched, our present reality now is affected by the gospel, and our future trajectory for all of eternity is clearly marked and defined by the work of Jesus. No part of who we are in this multi-generational story goes untouched by the gospel. Paul depicts it in this way in Galatians chapter 4 when he says... When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman and born under the law. Let's stop right there. That's Christmas. That's my favorite Christmas passage. Because it effectively says that at at, at the fullness of time, uh, uh, maybe a a better translation than even what we see in the ESV is this idea of at just the right time. So you could read it that way. At just the right time, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law. This passage just screams the character and the nature of God to us. It tells us in no uncertain terms that God is the kind of God that when he sees the plight of his people, he's compelled to respond. But he doesn't just respond from a distance on the peripherals. He doesn't say, oh, I don't want to get my feet wet, uh, so I'll just kind of reach in and pluck you out. No, he says, I see your plight. I see your angst. I see the dire situation you're in. I'm going to interject myself into it. I'm diving headfirst into it. He incarnates himself into the person of Jesus. And at just the right time, scripture says, throughout the course of all of human history, he interjects himself into our brokenness. That is fundamentally what we celebrate at Christmas. And it's fundamentally what we celebrate day in and day out. That God is the kind of God that when he sees my plight, he intercedes on my behalf at just the right time. That is what God does. And that is who God is. Now, why? Galatians chapter 4, 
Verse 5. Why would he do this? To redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption. There's that word, as sons. I want us to begin to see this multi-generational story unfold. That God would interject himself at just the right time on our behalf. Why? Verse 5. To redeem those who were under the law. Past tense. Scripture is very clear in no uncertain terms. It speaks to our position, our past position outside of Jesus. It says that there was odds between us and God. We were at enmity with God. It even goes so far as to say in some very strong language Paul uses elsewhere that we were by nature objects of the wrath of God. That is hard and heavy, and I don't think any commentator or theologian can fully know to the extent of what that means. But what we can all agree on is that that sounds really, really bad. That our situation outside of Jesus was dire. That the plight that we existed within was one that we could not get ourselves out from. But God is the kind of God that sees our plight and interjects himself into it. Look at verse 4 compared to verse 5. Notice how Paul says that, that at just the right time, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law. So the place that God placed himself in Jesus was very low. We know that in scripture. We know that in the Christmas story. Born in a manger, born in humility, born into the midst of hostility and poverty, born with a bullseye on his back. People literally wanted to kill him because they were so threatened by him, even as an infant, because they knew there was something kingly about him. At just the right time, God sees the plight of his people, and he's born under that law. Verse 5, to redeem those who were under that law so that we might be brought into the family of God. Notice what Paul does here. He effectively says that God is the kind of God that sees the plight of his people, and he meets them exactly where they are. That we were condemned under the weight of the law, but that's exactly where Jesus came, in order to rescue and redeem us out of it. You might be someone in this room this morning that needs to know, you need to hear very clearly that Jesus has decisively dealt with your past. There is now no longer any condemnation in Jesus because you have been set free. There are some people that are in Christ but still feel condemned by the weight of their past. Let me tell you about this radical thing called grace. Here's what it does in this multi-generational story. It frees you from the condemnation of your past and it actually compels you and catalyzes you into worship. You now have the ability to look on your past and rather than feel condemned by it, be compelled by it. Because you can say, that's who I once was, once were, this is who I am now. Only Jesus can do that, and it compels me to worship him. Some of you need to know that your past has been decisively dealt with, but it doesn't end there. Verse 6, because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of the son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So stop there. Our past has been decisively dealt with. Our present reality now, Paul says, has been infused with the spirit of God, which has given us the capacity right now today to refer to God and cry out to him as Abba, Father. Theologians and, 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 and commentators will all come to the similar conclusion over the word Abba. And it's basically a very tender and affectionate word for father. Some might even go so far as to say that it's the equivalent of the word daddy. Whatever it might be, what we know to be true is that it's a very tender and affectionate word. Here's what Paul's saying. 
Your past was once marked by odds and enmity, and you were an object of the wrath of God. But Jesus met you exactly where you were, adopted you out of that, freed you from that, and now positionally in your present reality has infused you with the capacity to refer to God in very tender and affectionate language. Notice the contrast here where our, our, our relationship with God was once defined by odds and enmity, it is now defined by intimacy and affection. That we used to one time have to be afraid of how's God going to respond to me. Now we have no fear because we know exactly how he's going to respond to us. As any good father would to the son and the daughter that he loves dearly will be met with grace. Some of you need to know this morning that your present reality right now in Jesus has freed you from the anger of God. He's not mad at you. You may be failing, you may be struggling, you may be doubting, you may have some hesitation in your faith about something, but God's not mad at you. He's actually inviting you to come and experience his lavish grace towards you because he's loved you as a son and a daughter. But it doesn't end there. It's like an infomercial. It just keeps getting better and better, right? Let's add one more free thing in there for 1995. Verse 7. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. This word heir, this speaks to future language. Paul has said, your past has been decisively dealt with. Your present reality has been altered. You live in a new present reality with God. And you are now an heir of future. This future is guaranteed to you. The trajectory of your life in Jesus has been significantly altered forever, for all of eternity. An heir is someone who lives today with the guarantee of what's to come tomorrow, right? Very simple. We all know that. What does that mean for us? In scripture, it's very clear that you've been given a deposit now guaranteeing what's to come. That's what Paul says. Elsewhere, he talks about this idea that our present struggles outwardly uh, pale in comparison to the inward glory that will be fully revealed to us one day. Scripture is very clear that glory awaits us. Glory awaits us. The future trajectory of our lives and everything that we get to experience along the way has been radically shifted and altered and changed because of the work of Jesus. Here's what that means for us. We live in a world that is full of 24-hour news stations. And I believe, it's my opinion, that their primary objective is to scare you. They want you to be afraid that the next politician is the Antichrist, that the next economic downturn is going to, uh, you're not going to be able to feed your kids. You might actually have to eat one of them to survive, right? Like everything is just huge. Have you noticed there's three things? Everything's a crisis. Everything's a tragedy. Everything is, quote, uh, all capital letters, breaking news, right? Breaking news, Kim Kardashian got in a fender bender. Wait, really? Like that's, that's big news? Man. Everything is huge and everything is big and everything's the end of the world and, and the next disease is going to wipe us all out. And if you don't vaccinate your kids, you're, you're horrible. If you do vaccinate your kids, you're horrible. I mean, just everything's the end of the world and it's fear-mongering, but not for us because we live today with the assurance that in the end, Jesus wins over all of this. Like we have that confidence now today Because of this multi-generational story of redemption, we live today in a world that is not quite sure what to be afraid of and what to believe in. We live with this assurance of knowing, not an arrogance, but a confidence that Jesus wins in the end. 
And let me tell you, you live in, neighbor, you live in a neighborhood surrounded by people who are f- afraid. And you work in office buildings surrounded by people who are afraid. You sit in classroom students surrounded by people who are afraid of the next crisis, the next, uh, the next scandal, the next tragedy, the next whatever. And they need to see you not afraid. And they need to be able to ask you why you're not afraid. And you need to be able to tell them why you're not afraid. Because you know, in the end, Jesus wins. Amen? This is the gospel in us. Wait, I thought you were here to convince us all to adopt every orphan. No, I'm not. I'm here to convince you to celebrate the beauty and the wonder of the gospel in you. And then to begin to discover and discern how is God then uniquely calling you not just to celebrate that, but to demonstrate that multi-generational story of redemption through you. What we deeply celebrate, we are called to widely demonstrate. The parallels between orphan care and the gospel are beautiful and unending. Here's what we are being given the opportunity to do in the lives of the marginalized and the oppressed and the orphaned. We are being given the opportunity and the mandate and the privilege to see their plight and to interject ourselves into it. To let their brokenness break us so that we might bring healing into their life. Does that sound familiar? We are then being given the opportunity to interject ourselves into their brokenness and form a new present reality for them. And then, it doesn't end there, we are being given the incredible honor and privilege to not only interject ourselves into their brokenness, to form a new present reality for them, but to shift the trajectory of their lives from this day forward forever. The gospel and, the, and orphan care run so parallel with one another that at some point along the way, they begin to intercede into one another and the lines between the two get incredibly blurred as if it doesn't even exist anymore. They are so much the same. That's why no one who claims to celebrate the gospel in this room is exempt from the responsibility to demonstrate the gospel, period. That's why in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. Now you are the body of Christ and you are individually members of it. No option. This isn't an optional membership that the blood of Jesus has secured a spot for you in the body of Christ and you have been uniquely given a role. Not all of us are eyes, not all of us are ears, not all of us are hands. Not everyone is called to do the same thing, but everyone in light of the gospel is responsible to do something, period. That we would deeply celebrate and then we would learn to widely demonstrate. As Jesus interjected himself into our brokenness, we too inject ourselves and intercede into the brokenness of the world around us in order to bring redemption and healing. We live in a fatally sin-scarred world. It's not that hard to see. Watch the news tonight. Drive home this afternoon, right? It's just, it's all around us. The evidences are clear that the world is not as it should be. There's even some unique ones in scripture that go all the way back to creation. It's often the case, I'll take my daughters out behind our house and we'll walk through the woods and they'll get stuck by some thorns or some thistles or whatever. And, uh, and then it's the end of the world. We hate you, daddy. Why did you bring us out here? And all that stuff, right? And I'm reminded in those moments, this is not how it's supposed to be. If you look back in the Genesis account, you find that when sin entered the picture, the curse came down specifically on man in regards to his work. 
And it says that your work will be hard. As a matter of fact, you're going to work the land and the land is going to work against you. That's a way of saying work is going to be hard. In a very subtle verse and there speaks to, uh, there's now going to be thorns and thistles on vines and on bushes. And it makes me think that perhaps pre-sin, there were no thorns and thistles. Post-fall, the curse, there are now thorns and thistles. And so now, rather than enjoying the freedom of taking my girls for a walk in the woods without fear of getting hurt, I have to be concerned about where they put their next step. And that's not how it's supposed to be. The fact that all of us in this room, as best as I can tell with the lights in my face, are fully clothed and none of us are naked, right? We're all good is evidence that, that's, that the world is not how it's supposed to be. Bear with me. Galatians, or Genesis. Adam and Eve are in the garden. They're naked and what? Unashamed. No shame. That's just how it is. That's how it's supposed to be. Scent enters the picture. Their immediate instinctual reaction is to what? Cover themselves, to hide their shame. You know that every day you and I get up and we, we reenact this covering of our shame every day. That the fact that we have to wear clothes is evidence that the world is not as it should be. The great irony in our clothes is that many of us spend a lot of time and money and energy using our clothes as a form of our identity and our security, when really all that they are is a covering for our shame. These things are normative now. There's just thorns on roses. We just wear clothes. It's what we do. Things that are not the way that they're supposed to be have become normative in our world, and that is the greatest evidence that, thing, that this world is fatally flawed. Among the unending evidences that we live in a flawed world, the plight of the helpless and the hopeless and the marginalized and the orphaned in Scripture uniquely pains the heart of God and uniquely drives the actions of God. That's why passages like Deuteronomy chapter 10 says, God executes justice for the fatherless and the widow, and he loves the sojourner and gives him food and clothing. Psalm 68 says that he's the father of the fatherless and the protector of widows is God and his holy habitation. That ultimately scripture reveals in a consistent way that what God cares about, God does. And you want to see what breaks the heart of God? See what moves the hands of God. That God assumes the role of father to the fatherless. Why? Because the fatherless breaks his heart. That God executes justice for the marginalized and the oppressed with his hands. It's what he does. Why? Because injustice breaks his heart. That's the kind of God that we serve and we celebrate and that we refer to as Abba, that we're tender and affectionate with. That's what he cares about and is therefore what he does. But it doesn't end there. We don't just celebrate that God We're called to reflect that God and demonstrate that God. And so the mandate continues on to us. Psalm chapter 82 says, you give justice to the weak and fatherless. You maintain the rights of the afflicted and destitute. Isaiah 1, you cease to do evil. You learn to do good. You seek justice. You correct oppression. You bring justice to the fatherless. You plead the widow's cause. It's it's not unclear in scripture that these are the things that break the heart of God. These are the things, therefore, that drive the actions of God. And the things which breaks the heart of God must, therefore, break ours. And the things that drive the hand of God must, therefore, be the rhythm of our lives. This is what I care about and what I do, and this is what you should care about and what you do. They are one and the same. And so our identity now as followers of Jesus is that our identity, our baseline identity is we are seekers of justice and correctors of oppression in a fatally sin-scarred world. That we are agents of reconciliation and agents of redemption in a world that is not the way it's supposed to be. 
Some of you may be school teachers. Some of you may be doctors. Some of you may be, uh, uh, you stay at home as a parent. Some of you uh, might be trash men. You, who, whatever you are and whatever the source of your paycheck is, begin to see it this way. I work at Anadarko, and Anadarko pays me this much money in my salary. But all that Anadarko is really doing, whether they know it or not, is being used by the hand of God subversively to fully fund me as a missionary to seek justice and correct oppression in this world. That I'm a seeker of justice and corrector of oppression who happens to be a school teacher in Tomball ISD. And that salary that I make from Tomball ISD is God's providential way of fully funding me as a missionary to seek justice and correct oppression wherever I might be, in my classroom, in my school system. Well, I'm just a student. No, you are a seeker of justice and corrector of oppression that God has said, be a student now, but be a student that seeks justice and corrects oppression. Be a student who majors in that. Be a college kid that dreams not of who am I going to marry, what cool city am I going to live in, how much am I going to make, but be a college kid that says, what major do I have to get that's going to best allow me to be a seeker of justice and corrector of oppression? And then that will define who I marry and who I date and who I don't and where I go and what I do and what I don't do. Does it allow me to live out my baseline identity of being a seeker of justice and corrector of oppression? And all of this leads us to this paramount passage in the New Testament in James chapter 1 verse 27 where it says that religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Here's what we've seen for generations is that We've taken one little hook in scripture, James 1.27. Here's our orphan care hook. And we're going to hang all this weight of orphan care ministry on this one little hook. And what I hope that we see here this morning is that this is not just one little hook. This is just another verse, another example in this long continuation of the consistent theme of, of scripture about God's heart for justice, God's heart for the marginalized, God's heart for the oppressed and the orphaned and the fatherless. We don't have just one little hook in scripture. We have the whole of scripture and the whole heart and counsel of God. And James seems to suggest that of all the ways you can demonstrate your faith, you can give, you can pray, you can attend church, community group, you can do all of these different things which are necessary and essential. But there seems to be one that ranks among the highest and the purest of all of these. That pure and undefiled, that's, it's as if he's saying all of these things are beautiful, but man, have you seen this? Why would he hold that up as a litmus test for pure and undefiled and authentic and genuine faith? I believe it's this. I believe that orphan care is pure and undefiled. It's described that way because it's one of the clearest, most visible, tangible demonstrations of the gospel that this world will ever see. The parallels between the gospel and orphan care run so close together that it's hard to tell them apart. That when we interject ourselves into brokenness, form new realities, and alter, uh, alter future trajectories, that demonstrates to this world with great purity, with an undefiledness, with a vividness, with a brilliance, with a clarity, who God is and what God does, pure and undefiled. So I want to end our time looking at 
three ways that we see the gospel demonstrated through our care of orphans, through our care of the marginalized and the oppressed and the orphaned around us. And we're going to try to fly through these. Number one, orphan care is less about pulling a child out of a broken story, and it's more about us being pulled into one. Look at Matthew chapter 1, verse 23. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son. They shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God is with us. Here's what we celebrate at Christmas. Here's the great, here's the great crescendo outside of the cross. The great crescendo of scripture is this, that God is not just there. God is here. Wow. That God would come near to his people, that he would come and be a part of our story, that he would come and interject our, himself into our brokenness. That is a, a deep-seated celebration and, and, and conviction and cornerstone of our faith. That God is not absent and distant. He's near and he's intimate. He's become one of us by becoming to live among us. That Jesus loved us by first engaging with us in our sin. He took our story upon himself and he made it his own. He allowed our brokenness to ultimately carry him to the cross so that we could begin to have a new story told in our lives. Orphan care is less about just reaching into brokenness and pulling a kid out. It's more about us interjecting ourselves into the brokenness of the world that that child and that family exists in, being broken by that, and ultimately bringing restoration and healing into it. When I was nine years old, I found out that the man I had grown up calling dad was in fact not my biological father. And it wasn't some grand scheme of my parents that at nine years old, we'd have a family meeting. He'd be mature enough to handle it. Not at all. I was snooping around in my mom's uh, dresser, and I found old paperwork and an old report card of my sister who had a different last name on it. I took it to my mom and said, uh, hey, what's wrong? They made a mistake. Christy's last name is wrong. And she said, oh, um, yeah, we need to talk to you. So that's how the family meeting came about. So it's me and my mom and my dad, and they begin to explain to me that he is, in fact, not my biological father. And they begin to unfold for me the story of the first two years of my life, which were marked by abuse and neglect and adultery from my biological father to my mom and alcohol, all of these things. You name the vice, and it existed. And it got to a point where, for the safety of her two young children, my mom had to make the hard decision, not... not not the ideal decision, but the hard decision for us to be removed from that in order to protect us physically and emotionally. My dad, my biological father, continued on his way. Sometime later, my mom, now 32 years old, with two super cute pieces of baggage, I might say, walks into a church, and up on stage sees a young guy leading worship. They eventually become friends, they eventually begin dating, they eventually fall in love, and he eventually uh, gets down on his knee and asks my then 33-year-old mom for her hand in marriage, and at the same time asks for my hand to become his son and my sister's hand to become his daughter. A now 23, 24-year-old guy marries a 32, 33-year-old divorced woman with two uh, pieces of baggage, super cute, but still a lot of history, a lot of brokenness, and he makes that story his own. He adopts me as his son, changes my first, middle, and last name. I'm learning all of this at nine years old. I have two birth certificates, and the trajectory of my life has been altered literally forever as a result of that. There hasn't been a day that's gone by since I learned of that story that I haven't paused and considered on some level, where would I be right now had I been raised in the context in which I was born? Doing student ministry in college and after, planting a church in the delivery room, watching my three baby girls being born, all, I mean, all of these scenarios. 
Never, never. It all comes to a head the day that I'm 23 years old, the same age my dad was when he met my mom. I'm 23 years old, now standing before all of our friends and family, marrying the woman of my dreams. And my pastor dad is officiating the ceremony. So it's the three of us up there, an already surreal moment compounded by the fact that it hits me. I'm the same age now that he was when he took me. And there's no way that I would be marrying this woman had this man not interjected himself into my story. Change the present reality in which I would be, uh, live and the future trajectory of my life forever. Fast forward some 30 years after my dad taking me into his, be his own, my wife and I feel called that we need to do the same. We need to tell that story in the lives of kids who need it. We become licensed foster parents. Three weeks after signing our license, we get the first call for a three-day-old baby girl. She's brought to our home on what would have normally been just another Wednesday night. Now is a, uh, it's a decisive turning point in the trajectory of our lives forever. Three-day-old baby girl brought to us, experiencing withdrawals from cocaine. After three days, experience more abuse and tragedy and neglect than many of us will in a lifetime. And now you're holding that child uh, at the time in our home in the woodlands. And we were living, we were just the woodlands, right? And now we've got a story that's just destroying our woodlands story. Interrupting that, awakening us, breaking us. And from that day forward, now two and a half years later, she's become our daughter. We've changed her first, middle, and last name. She and I now share that story We have four birth certificates between the two of us. And there hasn't been a day that's gone by since she's been in our home that my wife and I haven't paused and considered on some level, where would she be right now? What would she be doing? What would she be eating? Who would she be playing with had she been raised in the context in which she was born? On the beach at vacation with our other three daughters, playing dollhouse in in their rooms, sleeping in her crib every night, going in and checking on her and just just being overwhelmed with this idea of where would she be right now had we not been given the privilege to interject ourselves, change her present reality, and alter her future trajectory. And I think in all of that, on some level, all of us are compelled to pause and consider at various moments throughout our life, and perhaps it's right now for you, to stop and to step back and to consider, gosh, where would I be right now had Jesus not... Where would I be right now had he not interjected himself into my story? Most of us in this room would say, I wouldn't be in this room, right? Some might go so far as to say, I'd be dead, I'd be in jail. Who knows where I would be? That sin, that vice in my life that used to consume me, but Jesus freed me from, it would have just run rampant and ultimately killed me. That's where I would be. Where would I be right now had Jesus not? This becomes the basis and the motivation which compels us to rewrite that story into the lives of those around us. Let's begin to dream bigger dreams for our lives rather than just how many seashells in Florida can I collect in my retirement and how many golf shots can I hit or how few golf shots can I hit every day in retirement. Let's dream better dreams. Let's dream dreams where at the end of our lives, we're on our deathbed and we're surrounded by people whose story is this. I don't know where I would be had you not stepped into my life. Me too. I don't know where I would be had he not stepped in. Me too. Me too. Let's dream dreams like that. At the end of our days, we're going to measure the value of our life, not by what we did and where we went, by, but by who we loved and how we were able to change their life. That's what ultimately really matters. It's less about 
pulling a child out of a broken story. And it's more about us taking their story upon ourselves and making it our own, breaking past cycles, forming new present realities, and altering future trajectories. Second, real quick, orphan care is a spiritual battle. It is spiritual warfare at its core. The real enemy in orphan care is not delinquent birth parents, but it's Satan who wants to steal and kill and destroy the lives of families and kids. That when you step into their brokenness and you intercede in order to bring justice about on their behalf, you fight against an enemy who wants to uh, perpetuate the generational cycles of brokenness that have led them to that point. I'll never forget trial day when we're standing before the judge and I'm standing next to biological father who is about to lose his rights over the little baby girl. And the judge says, do you believe it's in the best interest of the child for the father's rights to be terminated? And it's in that moment that verses like 1 John flooded my mind. We have an advocate with the father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He's the propitiation for our sins. 1 Timothy 2, there's one God, one mediator between God and man who stands between God and man the man Jesus Christ. And it's in that moment, for the very first time, in a very real and tangible way, I realized that in a very spiritual sense, this is exactly what Jesus has done for us. It's as if Jesus stood before God the judge, and God the judge says, Jesus, do you believe it's in the best interest of Jason for the enemy's rights to be terminated? And for Jesus to say, without hesitation, yes, I do. And I willingly accept all responsibility that comes on me as a result that Jesus would be willing to stand for justice on my behalf and accept whatever consequences come down on him as a result. And let me suggest this, church. Let me suggest that on some level and in some way, the gospel compels us and albeit demands us to stand for them exactly where Jesus has stood for us. That this is by nature a spiritual war that is being waged against the life of kids. And if those of us in the church who understand spiritual warfare better than anybody else don't understand the role and responsibility we have to fight for justice on their behalf, then who else will? Let me close with this. The third thing is to call to lose your life for the sake of someone else. Jesus is very clear. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Second Corinthians says, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. This is the great exchange of the gospel. He was full of glory. We were empty in our sin. He filled us with his glory and took on the emptiness of our sin. That the call to care for these kids is ultimately the call to lose ourselves for, our, for their sake. And in turn, they find life, but so do we, Jesus says that we actually find what life is all about and what the real meaning of life is, to lay ourselves down in a very practical way. It can mean this, that some of your concerns and hesitations are obliterated by this. Well, it might cost us money. Yeah, it's going to cost you money. Weigh and balance the life and the soul of a child that the enemy has his target on versus the amount of money it's going to cost you. I guarantee the child is always more valuable. Yeah, but you don't understand our, our, how busy we are. Yeah, but you don't understand that there's an enemy who wants to steal and kill and destroy the lives of kids. Yeah, but you don't, our kids are so young and bring in another kid, but you don't understand. When we weigh and balance anything, and I guarantee you anything against the life and the soul of a child, the life of that child always, every time, without a doubt, comes out more valuable and worth it. We have to count the costs 
But in so counting the cost, the child always comes out more valuable. And this is what we mean when we say, look, this is less about do I want another kid for my family? Quite honestly, I don't necessarily care, can I say that, if you want another kid for your family. What I care most about is does God want your family for another kid? The gospel of giving, that we would lose ourselves, that we would give our family, that the objective isn't just to get a child for our family, it's to give our family for a child and to willingly accept, joyfully accept whatever implications come down on us as a result of that. In the end, this multi-generational story of hope in our lives is being rewritten in the lives of those around us. And in so doing, we see the love of Jesus towards us reflected in our love towards them. Every night I go in and I check on Marley while she's sleeping and I have these thoughts of where would she be, what would she be doing, and I can't help but consider, gosh, where would I be? What would I be doing had Jesus not? And just the presence of her in our family is a constant reminder to me of my own redemption in Jesus. For whatever redemption we've brought about in her life, she's exponentially brought about more in our lives. For whatever rescue we've brought about in her life, she in no uncertain terms has rescued us from ours. She's awakened us from a complacency we didn't even know existed. She's motivated us out of an apathy that we didn't even know we were living under the weight of. And the lines begin to blur a little bit. Did we adopt her or did she really adopt us? Because that's how this whole thing works. Orphan care and the gospel are so intricately tied together that the lines begin to blur so much that in the end, you realize it really is all just one and the same. Let's pray. So Father, I know... That's a lot, and I pray for wisdom and discernment for what that looks like for us next. I pray for this church. I pray for uh, bold but thoughtful next steps, that as we are a people who deeply celebrate, help us be a people who widely demonstrate. Remind us over and over again of our own story of redemption, and give us opportunities, Father, to retell that story into the lives of the marginalized and the oppressed around us. Give us wisdom for what that uniquely looks like as individual members of one body, but give us boldness to make the decisions we need to make, to lay ourselves down for the sake of those around us. It's in your name we pray. Amen.